If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Oh, good morning, everyone. It seems a little bit, I don't know, sacrilegious or something, doesn't it, to be sitting inside here on this glorious day, sunny day, talking about the dark side of the universe. Um, but it's going to be worth it, I'm absolutely sure. Um, I, I, I often feel that um, one of the best rejoinders to the suggestion you sometimes hear that scientists like to think they know everything and can explain everything is the response that came from the discovery in the late 1990s that the universe seems to be expanding at an accelerating rate, um, which is, was one of the key motivating factors behind this idea of dark energy. Um, because you know, that discovery showed how profoundly it seemed we'd missed something about the makeup of the cosmos, something that now seems to tell us that uh, around 70% of the energy in the observable universe comes from this stuff called dark energy. Um, and you know, another 20, 25% of it comes from this other stuff called dark matter, which we don't have time to talk about today. Just to make things clear, dark matter and dark energy are different things, if you weren't already clear about that. And we're talking about the former. Um, and so um, what is or what is this stuff, this energy that seems to be there that uh, we hadn't previously noticed? So that's what we're here to talk about. And to do that, we have Eric Verlinder uh, on my right is uh, a professor of theoretical physics at the University of Amsterdam. Michael Duff is also a theoretical physicist uh, and a string theorist from Imperial College in London. And as you've just heard, Massimo Pugliaccio has very generously did, uh, agreed to sit in uh, the, the, the third uh, chair that otherwise would have been vacant for this discussion. And Massimo, I, I guess you'll um, offer us um, a very different take, an outsider's take, or, I suppose. On yeah, this the comic relief. Question. Right, yes. Oh, great, <laughs> lovely. That's always a good thing. Um, so, first of all, uh, I'll give you Eric. Velinda to talk about his take on dark energy. 
Yes, uh, I mean, dark energy is mysterious, but it's uh, certainly there, and I think it's there for a reason. Um, the universe is extremely large. Um, it's also very dark. I mean, not totally dark. It's also not infinitely large, um, and it's also not infinitely empty. Indeed, there's something there. I mean, if we look at the observed accelerated expansion of the universe, it indicates that space is filled with something, and that's the dark energy that we're discussing. Uh, I will explain the relationship between dark energy and the, and the expansion a little later. Um, so I, I, I truly believe, by the way, it exists. It's not something that's not there, but it's not uh, described in the correct way. Our current theory, which is based on general relativity, is namely incomplete. And that's my, my uh, main, main point I want to make. In Einstein's gravity, uh, we think about space-time basically as having no properties. It's like a, a stage on which matter moves uh, under the influence of forces. But I think there are reasons, both from the observations as well from theory, to really challenge that point of view, that space-time is empty or made of nothing. Uh, first of all, there is indeed the fact that 95% uh, of the energy budget is in this mysterious forms, which is either dark matter or dark energy. But also we have insights uh, from string theory, from black hole physics, that tell us that space-time and gravity eventually will uh, emerge. I mean, it comes about from something microscopic in which these, these, these uh, phenomena have no, no real meaning. Uh, so dark energy and dark matter constitute this 95% of the energy budget. I mean, the stars that we see is less than 1%. And if we look at our current laws of physics, we only describe uh, what's being observed. And what we observed are the stars and maybe the radiation from the Big Bang, but that's only a very tiny fraction of all of the energy in our universe. Now, in physics, we generally ignore uh, what uh, is happening in the microscopic level, like the air in this room. Uh, we don't generally care about all the microscopic molecules, how they are moving, we just forget this. And this is how we make our laws of physics and also in our everyday life. We talk about things that move like the cars and so on, but not the air and, and, and in there. The same is true for space-time. And our current theories are ignoring most of the things that are moving in our uh, universe. So I claim that dark energy is actually the thing that we've not described well enough and that there's a microscopic theory that should eventually explain what's happening in, in, uh, in dark energy. So. Um, I told you I was going to talk about uh, the relationship between expansion and dark energy. The fact that the universe expands means that things are moving away from us and with higher velocities when we are further away. And eventually there will be a distance where uh, things are moving away with the speed of light. And there's nothing we can see beyond that. And this is what we call the horizon of our universe. There's a finite distance and you can think about it as a, a giant dome around us where we can not look beyond. That's, as I said, called the horizon. And uh, there are horizons, other locations where there are horizons in, in our universe which have to do with black holes. And one of the big discoveries we have made in physics is that horizons have very special properties. And this is a discovery due to Stephen Hawking. Uh, a horizon tells us namely about how much, um, for a black hole, how much information eventually went into the black hole. It also tells us something that there must be a temperature associated with the black hole. And the same is true with our universe. The universe has a lot of information in there, uh, which is the size of our uh, cosmological horizon. And it's that information eventually that we have not been able to describe yet. We've been ignoring it, but it's contained in the dark energy. 
Uh, the dark energy tells us actually that uh, our, our universe is not um, just empty, but it's being filled with something that uh, we still have to learn how to describe. Uh, so I think we're not uh, there yet with our theorist point of view. We don't know, understand everything yet. But I think we live in an exciting time where we're going to change the way we think about gravity, about space-time, and we're going to change even the way that Einstein described gravity with his uh, theory of curved space-time by thinking about, indeed, what is the microscopic uh, building blocks of the space-time uh, itself. So my, my point of view is that, indeed, we don't have the final theory yet, and that when we have it, I think dark energy will be the most exciting thing that's happening there. And there's lots of equations we haven't discovered about it yet, but it's certainly an indication of uh, the fact that we don't have the complete theory yet. Well, in 1998, we discovered that the universe was not only expanding, but accelerating. And the simplest explanation, and the one I'll focus on today, is that it's due to the so-called cosmological constant that Einstein introduced into his equations in 1917. Now, Einstein famously abandoned the cosmological constant in 1929, calling it the biggest blunder of his life. And so, according to most popular accounts, in the intervening 60 years before the discovery of the acceleration of the universe, according to these popular accounts, we all assumed the cosmological constant was equal to zero. Now, I would like to contend that that is very misleading. You can find that explanation, by the way, in Wikipedia, for example, and I even saw it in a recent uh, edition of Physics World. But it's misleading. In fact, it's so misleading, it's wrong. For example, I myself co-authored a paper in 1979 entitled Quantizing Gravity with a Cosmological Constant. So we certainly weren't assuming it was zero, and others uh, had the same opinion. In fact, I'll argue that the onus was on those who thought it was zero to prove otherwise, not the other way around. Now, why do I say that? Well, the key theme, and it's one that I hope to develop, is symmetry. Symmetry is an idea that pervades all of theoretical physics. Consider a snowflake with hexagonal symmetry. If we rotate it by an arbitrary angle, it looks different. But if we rotate it by a special angle, 60 degrees, 120 degrees, it looks the same. The same is with our equations. If we change the variables in our equations in such a way that the equations remain the same, a very special change of variables, we call that a symmetry principle. And the sameness we call an invariance principle. For example, if we denote time by t, and we shift t by a constant, and our equations stay the same, we say they have time translation invariance. And that's a good thing, because usually we want our equations, the laws of physics, to be the same next week as they were this week. And other symmetries dictate the standard model of particle physics. So the importance of symmetry cannot be overstated. But there's one aspect of symmetry that we 
familiar with today that was not fully appreciated in Einstein's time. Once you've chosen your favorite symmetry, it's not enough to write down equations that are invariant under it. You must write down every conceivable term in your equation that is invariant under it. Because even if at the classical level you decide to leave it some terms out that you don't like, the quantum theory will force you to reinstate them. Now, Richard Feynman, one of the world's leading theorists, encapsulated this principle by saying, everything which is not forbidden must be allowed. Now, in Einstein's general theory of relativity is based on what you might call the supreme symmetry, the principle of general covariance. It says that the laws of physics must be the same to all observers, whether they're in relative uniform motion, accelerating, whatever they're doing, the laws of physics must be the same. And that invariance principle allows for the cosmological constant. So Einstein had no right to abandon it. It's there whether you like it or not. And this was the principle that my colleagues and I had in mind when we wrote about the cosmological constant in the 1970s and 80s. If you can't rule it out, you have to allow for the fact that it's there. And subsequent observations bore out that point of view. Now, you could say, well, my, 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 perhaps there's some other symmetry, not Einstein symmetry, that would rule out a cosmological constant. And a lot of effort has been put into that uh, without success, which is perhaps a good thing, since we now know that it's non-zero. But the problem we face today, are we now happy then, having decided that we have to have a cosmological constant, whether we like it or not? and the astronomers have now observed it, are we now happy? Well, no. Because the mystery is, why is this cosmological constant so incredibly small? According to our favorite theories, quantum theory would give us a cosmological constant 120 orders of magnitude bigger than what we actually observe. And in fact, someone once said, that's the world's record for the worst agreement between theory and experiment. So, do we need new physics? We don't need new physics to predict the existence of the cosmological constant, but we may need new physics to predict why it takes the value that it does. Yeah, so you're right. I'm, I'm neither a physicist nor do I play a physicist on television, uh, but, but I am a scientist and, um, and recently turned into a philosophy of science. My background originally is in biology, and we do have similar problems uh, in terms of, so my interest is in, in the relationship between evidence and theory. And in population genetics, which is the overarching mathematical structure in evolutionary biology, uh, there is an is a similar issue uh, of, well, here's what the theory describes, here's what the empirical evidence is, and the two sometimes don't match, although the mismatch you just mentioned is nothing, nothing like I've ever seen in biology, actually, so it's like I'm glad to hear that the physicists sometimes get it that wrong. Um, <clears throat> so, so to me, the, the, there is a very interesting, a series of interesting questions which maybe we will get to in the, in the discussion uh, whenever these kind of topics come up. Uh, one is, uh, for instance, we, we've heard the use of the term discovery, 
right? Well, discovery has different meanings depending on the context. Can one discover things by sheer mathematical calculations, for instance, or mathematical proof? Uh, well, it depends on what you mean by discovery. Uh, mathematics is obviously uh, an invaluable tool in science, but there are people that argue that unless the mathematical insight or the mathematical predictions or the mathematical description of a particular phenomena or a set of phenomena is actually matched by empirical evidence to a, to a good degree, to a high degree, then it's not science. It's interesting mathematical speculation. A philosopher would say even it's metaphysics, which in physics is often a dirty word, but philosophers have no problem with it, of course. Uh, so, so one of the things that I'd like to hear more um, during this discussion is exactly what the physicists themselves think are the limits of the relationship between mathematical insight and mathematical theorizing and, and sort of physical evidence. Because that seems to me goes, goes straight to the heart of the question of whether do we need a new physics or not. You know, what do we mean by a new physics? Do we mean that we throw something, you know, whatever's been done so far out of the window? That's what it sounds to me when somebody says, I need a new thing, right? That's a new car, I want a new car. That means I throw my, my, my old car away. What I, however, what the history of science, and in particular the history of physics shows is that we don't usually throw stuff away. Uh, what we do is to build on, on top of other, of other things. And then often we find out that early versions of our theories were either limit cases or simplifications of what comes out to be uh, the next, next best thing. But sometimes we do throw away things. Uh, the philosopher Thomas Kuhn, uh, who was actually a physicist, described this as a paradigm shift, right? When you go from Newtonian mechanics to general relativity, uh, is there a paradigm shift? Is that, are things so different, so radically different, that they really correspond to very, very different ways of interpreting the world and understanding the world? And if that's the case, then uh, the additional question that arises is, is this progress? Um, most people would think yes. But in what sense is that progress? Because so does that mean that we were completely wrong before? If we were not completely wrong before, then it's not really throwing away, it's building on something. But if we were uh, totally wrong before, and then we're gonna do it again, you know, uh, the, we just heard the, the Einstein's view of, uh, of gravity may be uh, about to be overturned by some kind of new physics. Well, does that mean that he was wrong, or does that mean that we're actually building uh, in a way that we can recover um, general theory of relativity or, or Einstein's insight about, about uh, gravity without throwing the stuff away. So these, these are some of the questions that I'm interested in as a, as a philosopher. The debate. Theme one. It, it sort of occurs to me from what all of you have said that the, the, the issue, uh, the, the, the question uh, in theory on the paper that we're meant to address now is does dark energy really exist? And I think it's clear from what everyone has said that Actually, that's probably not the question to ask. Um, it seems clear that something that we call dark energy, that there are almost too many reasons why it should exist, that it's, there are reasons if you have a general relativistic uh, description of the, the universe, there has to be something like that there. If you have a quantum mechanical explanation of space, then there seems to be something there, a vacuum energy that is, as Michael said, actually vastly bigger than what we see. And as I understand it, the, the situation had been that until 
there was observational reason to really you know, press this question. People had, a lot of people had assumed that there must be something that makes all this stuff vanish um, because you know, otherwise we've got to confront this problem that the vacuum energy is, is predicted to be so immense and that it's the observations that made us think actually there does seem to be something like dark energy but it's much smaller than, than you know, the theory would predict. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit about why we now have to grapple with this problem. We talked about this, these observations of the acceleration of the universe, but that's not the only observational evidence for, uh, for, for invoking dark energy, is it? It's the most important one. I don't think we would have uh, gone to that conclusion if we would not have seen the evidence in terms of the accelerated expansion. There's also the issue of the flatness of yes. the universe. Um, so there can you t explain what that, what that means, first of all, what okay. the, the, the universe is flat? So, so I mean, we, we can think about curvature, I mean, like you have a, a round object like a ball, uh, but you can also have a, a flat plane. And you can ask, well, is our universe, when we think about its space, uh, like indeed a flat sheet, or is it more like a ball with some kind of curvature? And, and, we, and the evidence is, and this you can measure, by looking at, at observations in, in, from faraway objects, that the, the space is exactly flat, like a flat sheet. And from Einstein's equations, we can then figure out how much energy there should be in the universe. Now, we can have different forms of energy in terms of uh, the matter that we see, but uh, the stars we see is only 1%, and, and the matter like we know it's, it's most 4 or 5%. Then there's dark matter that we believe might be there, but we never get to the total which is needed to get this flat universe. And so to make up the, the difference in the, in the energy budget, something has to be added. And this is then the only candidate we had already was the dark energy. And so when it was found, it was indeed sort of precisely at the right level that eventually we can explain even why the universe, uh, the space itself looks so flat. And there we can use Einstein's equations quite well. So this is a, a situation where uh, we can still simply use the, the, the old theory of Einstein uh, to, do, to describe what's going on. That doesn't mean that it, uh, it's the final word on it, because uh, the dark energy is more than 70, well, it's close to 70%. Together with dark uh, matter, it's even 95% of all of the energy in the universe. And we have no equations describing really what's going on there except writing only the dark energy in terms of one constant. It's like taking need all the air in, the in, the, in, in, in this room and just call one constant, which is the temperature, and that's the way we describe it. So, we have, so the way I think about Einstein's theory is very much like uh, how we can derive the laws that describe the motion of the thermodynamics of the air by doing statistical physics, by going to an atomic picture, and then this, these laws will emerge. You can derive them from, from the underlying description. And so Einstein's equations can be derived. We will not throw them away. Will we derive them from a more microscopic picture, which is much more complete, and will also describe what's really going on in this 70%? Uh, OK, I, I want to get on later to <coughs> what you think that microscopic picture might be, because I know you have ideas about that. But, M Michael, I wondered whether looking into this question of you know, why, what, what motivates the idea of, of dark energy, you presented it as a feature of the equations, of the symmetry of the, the equations, which kind of tells you there has to be this thing called the cosmological constant. I think one of the things that's sometimes difficult to grasp is what's the connection between that idea that, as Massimo said, seemed to come out of the mathematics 
and speaking about dark energy, which kind of gives it a sort of physical substance almost. You know, we think of it as being a, almost a tangible thing. Where, do, where does the uh, existence of the cosmological constant give rise to the notion that there is all this energy in space? Well, I tried to argue that the, uh, the cosmological constant had to be there by logical, mathematical reason. And before I answer your question, I'd like to address Mario's. Um, when we talk about new physics, he's right. What we tend to do is to incorporate the old physics. We don't throw it out the window. When Dirac was faced with reconciling quantum theory with Einstein's special relativity, he came up with relativistic quantum field theory. But a requirement of that new theory is that it should reduce to the familiar quantum mechanics for particles that are moving slowly compared to the speed of light. Similarly, when Einstein came along, he improved on the old-fashioned Newtonian picture of gravity. But even general relativity has to incorporate the Newtonian view in the limit where the gravitational fields are weak. It must be compatible with what we already know. And now we're faced with the issue that we want to reconcile Einstein's general theory of relativity and quantum mechanics. And we have various proposals for this, M theory, string theory, other theories. But the requirement would be that in those limits, in the regime in which the old theories were valid, our new theories must still go over to those in that limit. So it's radical and conservative at the same time, in some sense. Now, Classically, Einstein's equations allow for a cosmological constant. Quantum mechanically, it's even more uh, compelling for the vacuum energy reason that you mentioned. And unfortunately, the answer we get is way too big. So to answer your question is really rather difficult because the cosmological constant we observe which we believe is responsible for the dark energy and the acceleration of the universe, is tiny compared with what our theories are telling us. So the answer to your question, in a way, is they don't fit. And so something new is needed, whether it's a, a new something beyond M-theory and string theory, something that Eric will propose to us later today, or something that none of us have even thought about. Something new is required to reconcile the theory and the experiment. Now, there's one possible explanation, theoretical explanation, which is very controversial. And that is, we ask ourselves, why is the cosmological constant have the value that it does? And this fits in with the notion that the universe is in general, not just with regard to the cosmological constant, but in general, very well tailored for intellectual, intelligent beings like ourselves to exist. If the cosmological constant were bigger than it is, uh, it would have, the universe would have contracted far too quickly or expanded far too quickly for galaxies to form. And if it was too weak, it would, the galaxies wouldn't have formed. So one idea is that the reason the cosmological constant has the value that it does is that we're here to observe it. And that ours is but one of many universes, one of a multiverse of universes. 
in which the cosmological constant can have all kinds of different values. And the reason it has the value that we observe is because we're here to observe it. Now, um, lots of people don't like that explanation. They think it's a cop-out. And I think the jury is still out on the multiverse idea. But it could be that many of the things that we think are fundamental, the cosmological constant, the strength of the electromagnetic forces, the masses of the elementary particles, things that theorists hope to one day derive from first principles, may in the end just be accidents of the universe we happen to be inhabiting. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Is it fair to say that string theory supports that idea to the extent that it suggests there are many other solutions to the equations? There are many other ways that things could be um, that, you know, our, the, the rules that we see in our universe aren't necessarily fixed by string theory? Yes, there is, it, it is supporting that idea. And it's a bringing together of two different strands of thought. The cosmologists like the idea, or many of the cosmologists, like the idea of the multiverse, because the most popular version of the Big Bang, the so-called inflationary universe, suggests that our Big Bang was just one of many Big Bangs, possibly infinitely many, and that would lead to the idea of the multiverse. String theory, on the other hand, has millions of different solutions to its equations. So that also lends credence to the multiverse. And so these two uh, groups of people are looking for common ground. And Steven Weinberg, who is one of the most conservative and well-respected particle physicists who won the Nobel Prize for the standard model of particle physics, tried to explain the value of the cosmological constant that we observe by these anthropic reasoning. He, he argued if it was too small, this couldn't happen. If it was too big, this couldn't happen. And he came up with a number which is remarkably close to the one that was subsequently observed in 1998. So he would have regarded that as a triumph uh, from the multiverse picture. Others are more skeptical. But that, it may in the end be that that's the answer to the puzzle. Is there also some uh, aspect of this fine-tuning that seems to be that, that, that says it's only at this era in the development of the universe that, we, that beings like us could exist? I hear that there is this, uh, this transition from a universe dominated by matter to one dominated by dark energy. Um, is, is that also an aspect of the problem? Uh, well, I don't know. You, you have to ask yourself what kind of creatures could exist in a dark universe. Uh, we, we mustn't assume that... Uh, dark creatures, very dark creatures, uh, yeah. We mustn't assume that they're just like us. 
Um, Massimo, this idea of uh, anthropic, I'm sure you've come across this anthropic reasoning. Oh, yeah. And um, it always feels like it's a que it is a question for the philosophy of science more than for, for physics. Do, do you think that that's true? Do you think it's a different kind of argument to what is generally used in science as an explanation for things? So I subscribe to the idea that uh, there is a number of issues that are the borderlines between philosophy and science. I don't draw a sharp distinction between, let's say, theoretical biology and philosophy of biology, or theoretical physics and philosophy of physics, or, or mathematics, or philosophy of mathematics for that matter. There are some issues that are clearly only about the science. You know, if the question is straightforwardly empirical, then the philosopher, since we like our armchairs, see, I'm uncomfortable because there are no, no arms in this chair, but we like our armchair, uh, uh, stuff, so those questions are clearly non-philosophical, and there are some questions that seem to be uh, definitely more on the philosophical side. But this one is one of those where I think is a good idea to get philosophers and scientists together. So this happened recently in, in Munich, uh, where the, the Institute of Mathematics, Theoretical Mathematics there, um, sorry, Mathematics and Theoretical Physics there, organized this conference, where on string theory multiverse, uh, and the status of, of uh, current fundamental physics, uh, where, in fact, they uh, invited mathematicians, physicists, both empirical and not, as well as philosophers. And it was very interesting because this was one of the few venues where actually they talked to each other uh, as in, sort of in a, in, a, in a positive fashion. But you're right. So to go back to your uh, earlier question, yes, this thing of the anthropic principle uh, has been around for a long time, actually, it's decades. Um, and uh, and um, even before recent discoveries in, cos in cosmology and recent issues in theoretical physics, this idea of fine-tuning had been around for a long time. There are some people who don't react particularly well to the whole idea of the anthropic principle. Like, for instance, Martin Gardner, who was um, a really funny guy, skeptic, mathematician, brilliant uh, sort of thinker in general, uh, once came up with this classification of different types of anthropic principles. He said, you know, there's the, the weak anthropic principle, uh, that's called WAP, there is the strong anthropic principle, there's SAP, and then there is the uh, crap, the completely ridiculous anthropic <laughs> principle. And his point was, look, uh, this whole idea that somehow we have to come up with special explanations for why we are here, uh, it's a little bit self-conceited. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, the, it's a new version, it's the modern version of the old idea that we are the pinnacle of creation and there must be a particular reason why we're here. It used to be, in the Middle Ages, it used to be God, and now it's uh, some kind of fine-tuning or multiverse or whatever, whatever it is. I mean, there is some, uh, I, I don't think things are quite that simple. I do think that the fine-tuning, I mean, there, there'll be several events later today uh, about this, this sort of issue. Um, and I, don't, I do think it's, it is an issue, and I do think it's an open question in science. But it is occasionally a good idea to sort of remember Martin Gardner and say, yeah, but maybe it isn't, really. So drawing back on my experience as a biologist, biologists, unlike physicists, are much more comfortable with the idea of contingency. Now, it could be because biologists just look at things once that the whole background of the laws of physics are settled, so we look at, at things that happen over millions of years on a particular planet and a particular uh, uh, Part of the galaxy, and so, you know, why did the dinosaurs go extinct? Well, you know, the meteor hit, and if it hadn't hit, maybe we would have a bunch of dinosaurs here talking about why humans never, never evolved. So biologists are very comfortable with this idea of contingency. Uh, in physics, typically the idea, on the other hand, although there are exceptions, is no, 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 I want to know 
why this has to be, there has to be a reason for it. The mathematics has to tell me a reason, or the empirical evidence has to you know, determine specific, a specific reason. To me, that's a philosophical question. It, you know, the, the, the role of contingency and the role of in, in, in scientific theorizing, and in, therefore, what kind of questions we, we go after, what kind of agenda we set for our science. That's, that's an interesting question. That's an open question. Theme two. Let's look at that then in the remaining time we have, because if we're not going to be happy with accepting this anthropic reasoning for explaining why dark energy is so small, then we need another explanation. Eric, do you have, uh, I think you do have a suggestion for where well, they may come from. You talked about a microscopic picture of what's going on. That's correct. I mean, I, I do think that, that uh, eventually we, we will replace the theory that has all these different constants in there where we don't know of any reason why they have a particular value. Uh, and I think when you go to the microscopics, then there's one question you have to address already is, I mean, how many building blocks I'm going to make the space-time out of? That's going to give me a very large number. And so if I want to explain uh, for instance, the discrepancy between the prediction and, um, and the value, the observed value, the 10 to the 120, it may be because there's, a, just right from the outset in my theory, a very large number that I have to assume. That's the same indeed when, when we made a theory of, of uh, statistical mechanics about the gases in, our, in a room, we used Avogadro's number. A very large number that suddenly came out there and we used it and, and it explains why there are many molecules in a particular part of the, uh, of the room. And the same is true in our universe. So there are two scales. There's the Planck scale, which is very tiny, where we know that quantum mechanics and, and gravity come together. But there's also the scale of the universe itself. And it's this, this difference that we have to explain. But I don't think it's an explanation that's going to be like, um, well, uh, we have, uh, can calculate this number. Because for me, these numbers are really given yeah, numbers to us. So our theory, like uh, string theory, is successful because it can be applied to many universes. Most of our successful theories, by the way, can be applied to many situations. They're universal. You can give me something and I can still adjust my constants in such a way that I can describe this. So the, the, the fact that string theory has all the possibility of describing many other universes doesn't worry me. I think eventually when we understand the microscopics, we have to indeed start from the, the number of constituents that we start from in our universe, we, we say this. So what is the microscopic? So one of the things that we have learned uh, by th thinking about black holes is that uh, there is something that we need to count, namely how many possible states can the universe be in. And there's a very big difference between, in our universe. Uh, we have, by the way, a positive uh, dark energy. We didn't even discuss this so much. There are also universes in string theory which have a negative cosmological constant, and actually most string theorists work in universes which have a negative cosmological constant, which is even lower energy than we observe. So we observe a positive energy, which tells to me that we have not uh, reached the bottom of our energy. I mean, usually you think about the vacuum as being empty, but the positive dark energy really tells us that the vacuum is contained with something and we're not in the ground state, and we're, we're living in a, in a very interesting universe with many possibilities, and, and, and those possibilities give us this big number, the 10, 120. So I think our, our universe is just a very interesting universe to live in, and that's what gives us, well, the size of the universe, but also the value of the cosmological constant tells us how large it is indeed. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, uh, if I get this right, so a positive uh, dark energy, is that essentially saying that it acts to counteract gravity and the negative would reinforce gravity? That's or? correct. The right. negative, uh, so the, the, what we observe is the accelerated expansion and that accelerated expansion is due to the, the, the positive mm -hmm. dark energy. But it also tells us indeed that things are moving away from us faster. While in this other universe that actually most string theorists are thinking about, there's additional attractive force due to the negative cosmological constant, and that would be a universe where everything falls back to the middle, uh, and you would not be able to see things disappearing uh, over a horizon. But it's not the universe we live in. Right. But, so mathematically, this is possible in, in string theory, and people are, are very much studying this. And it's indeed a good question is why don't we live in that universe? But I think the, the, the reason is really that, that we have indeed an interesting universe which has a positive, I call this, while we're not in the ground state, we're sort of in an excited state where many things are happening. And that, that actually, I think, eventually will explain what the value of the cosmological constant is, is that we have to understand how much energy is there in the beginning from the universe. And that's the one we observe, but we don't observe it in terms of matter or particles, but in this sort of vacuum energy that's slightly positive but not uh, well not as as large as we thought thought initially but it's indeed a very small number that explains the size of the universe it would it be fair to to say then for both of you really that um uh, we, we, you, you, do you think we're unlikely to really understand what dark energy is about until we have a good quantum theory of gravity and do you think it's very likely that if we have such a thing, that understanding of dark energy will fall out of it automatically? Well, that's what we'd like to think, yes. Um, I, if I may, I'd just reminded of a couple of quotes on this issue. Martin Rees, our astronomer royal, says it's a bit like going to the tailor and you find he only has one suit and it happens to be your color and your size. You'd be shocked and surprised. But if you go to the factory where they've got thousands of suits, then you wouldn't be at all surprised to find one that fits you. And that was uh, his analogy for why uh, the multiverse uh, is a, a good explanation. If you don't adopt the multiverse, you've got some explaining to do. Murray Delman, on the other hand, said, if we really live in a multiverse, then physics will have been reduced to an environmental science like bottom. <laughs> And I think that's a compliment. And he botanist. wasn't being kind to the botanist. <laughs> <laughs> may, may, I, may I ask a question, actually? Uh, because I'm, I'm really curious. This, this, this has been in the back of my mind throughout this discussion. So again, it goes back to the relationship between mathematics and physics. So I have an analogy from, uh, let's say, logic. Um, there are, there's a number of, of logically coherent things that can happen, let's say, in this room. It, could, it is perfectly logically coherent if we had the, the, the audience distributed in a completely different way from what it actually is. But as a philosopher, I don't expect logic to actually determine the specific um, arrangement of the, of the audience or the speakers in this room. All I expect is the logic to constrain it. That is, if you're telling me that there is a state of phys a physical state in this room that actually includes, uh, you know, involves logical contradictions or, or some violations of logical principles, then I'd say, no, that's impossible. But saving that, all I expect from logic is simply to be compatible, not to determine, uh, right, what what's happening on the ground in the physical in the physical world. So, on the other hand, what I do get the impression that I get from a lot, not all, 
but a lot of physicists, is that they would really like for the mathematics to precisely determine, not just to be compatible with. So physical reality shouldn't be just a subset of mathematics. Mathematics should just point and that's, that's it. That's, that's the way. Things have to be this way. That strikes me as almost, I'm going to use the P word here, almost a Platonist view of mathematics. That is, there's this sort of almost a mystical realm. I'm not accusing you guys of being mystical, but, but almost this, this, this idea that mathematics somehow transcends even the physical world, that, that it determines exactly how things are. And I'm curious, first of all, if that impression is in fact correct. And if not, uh, why then do we have this insistence between, well, I'd like to see a theory that actually clearly tells me what things, the way things are. Um, we, we've, we've go, I want to leave time for discussion, but let's, that's such a good point that's a debate in itself. Uh, I just want to give <laughs> either of you a chance to respond. Short, yeah. I, I think in, as physicists we do believe that there is a consistent mathematical framework that we'd like to sort of match with nature, mm -hmm. but we also think of this as a platonic object which matches nature, but you can always imagine there might be another one other description sort of that contains it. So it's not like it has to be the truth. And I think if you think about the, the, the elliptical orbits that Newton had, eventually they were not totally true, but they're very nice mathematical uh, descriptions of uh, planets. And I do think they sort of fit the reality uh, reasonably well. And I think in that way, we like our theories to sort of be mathematically consistent, therefore also be able to calculate as much as we can. But I agree with you, it doesn't mean that we have to be able to calculate everything. And, I, and I'm also happy with, and actually already stated this before, with theories that can describe many situations, one of which happens to be the universe uh, that we live in. I don't think that's bad for physics. And actually, it's generally the way we have been successful is to find frameworks that precisely allow us to do these kind of things, where we can still adjust our parameters so that we describe reality. Michael, is it the, the objective of string theory to get rid of all the arbitrariness and give a, you know, a final theory of why things are the way they are, why the constants of nature are the way they are? I think the uh, traditional view of theoretical physics, and string theory followed it, was, as you say, that we would one day have a theory that explains everything. It will explain why all the constants have the values they do. And the, uh, I think the original idea was that it will uniquely, it will not only be the correct theory, it will be the unique theory. And so in answer to the question that Einstein posed, did God have any choice in creating the universe? The answer would be no. However, that traditional view is more and more giving way, I think, to the multiverse view, that um, things are not unique. And many of the things we thought we would pin down will in the end be accidents of our particular universe. Now, I don't know which of these truths, uh, versions of the truth will pan out. I wish I did. Not a great question to finish on. Thank you very much for li listening and thank you very much to our speakers, Eric Valinda, uh, Michael Duff and Massimo Pugliagucci. Uh, thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. 
Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.